And then when you decide to go on your own, there's a lot of things you need to do to get started. So you just go ahead and charge for your time because that's what you have always been paid for. That's what your income was always connected to. You might not even realize there's other pricing options available to you. Our ever-changing world calls upon the most courageous, resilient, and relentless of us to face its most extraordinary challenges. To help you embark on this journey, we present the Impactful Coaching Podcast, your oasis for inspiration and a beacon to spark the fires of greatness within you. I'm Joseph. I will be your ally in this journey to empower your potential. Join us each week as we dive deep into the heart of ambition, drive, and success to unravel compelling stories of daring leaders who dreamed, struggled, and achieved victory. Our journey begins now. Welcome or welcome back to the show, everybody. This is the Impactful Coaching Podcast. My name is Joseph, and I've been in media for about 10 years. I help professionals like you do the best you can, or maybe I don't know, the best I can. It really depends on who's got more potential in the space. I am here with Lauren Fogelman. Now, uh, we're going to do a couple of things differently. Normally, I give it to the guest right away to do the introductions, but I just thought I'd uh, mix it up a little bit and write something out real quick. Today's episode, we have Lauren Fogelman of businesssuccesssolution.com, named by HubSpot as one of the tw top 22 business coaches, and is our first guest in the field of CPAs, bookkeeping, and accounting. But there was this arc that we had a, a little while ago where we had our first dating coach on, and I was super enthused to bring someone on into a new niche, a space that I hadn't had a chance to learn anything about uh, prior, you know, from the world of coaches. And so my crystal ball is telling me that <laughs> within the span of like a month or two, we're going to have a flood of like of CPAs and, and booking and accountant guests mm -hmm. on the show as well. Let's just see if the crystal ball is right on that one. Uh, what I'm hoping to accomplish with today's episode is to learn how Lauren works with professionals in her field and what commonalities each of us in our respective fields as freelancers, entrepreneurs, and of course, coaches can take away both in mindset and practicality. Lauren, how are things with you today? How are you feeling? I'm feeling fine. I live a good life. I just want to say it's something that wasn't always that way. I've had my years of struggle and it was through going through this process of building my business and figuring things out that I decided to have a business that supports my lifestyle because I already had the one that sucked the life out of me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I plan on asking you about that, but um, funny I say that because usually what we do, and this is a very inside baseball episode so far, is we always want to make sure that our guests get the most out of being here on the program. That's a personal KPI of mine, and it's just something that I feel that, I mean, what show wouldn't want to do that, right? And typically, if a guest has a question or two or a talking point or a key part of their business that we just want to make sure is mentioned on the show, we do it. Lauren went the extra step and it gave us pretty much enough content to not only do today's episode, but bring her back for a sequel. So uh, thank you for that. I, I, I don't know if it's like a, a stereotype thing, but... I, I guess a takeaway or an assumption that I would make about people in your field is that meticulousness, is that proactive nature and, and, and accountability. So I'm wondering if there was a correlation between that level of preparedness and the work that you do. Actually, first of all, I'm not an accountant or a bookkeeper. Just all my clients are accountants and bookkeepers. I'm a sports psychologist turned business coach. And I think that why this came around is because I've worked with a lot of coaches as I was moving forward with my business to help me with my own business development. And what I found is I got the best results from coaches that had frameworks and systems and that that was something that I started to bring more and more into my own coaching practice in order to be able to be more predictable with being able to get a certain outcome with my clients when they engage in my services. You said um, I didn't hear sports psychologist. Yeah, yeah, sports psychologist turned business coach. Okay, so let's uh, let's jump into that. The first step will be to hear your backstory, and along the way, I'd like to hear about some of the skills that have been developing that are still with you and that still serve you in your new space. New, mm -hmm. as in in terms of the chronology. I'm not sure how long you've been in it as of yet. A absolutely. Uh, as I said, um, I started out doing sports psychology, working with a lot of high achieving uh, athletes that were looking to be top of their game at all different levels from teenagers all the way up to the professionals. And what I found is that I was always doing some business coaching locally as well, because I liked the variety. And over the years, I just burned out with doing two businesses 
and needed to make a decision. And I thought in my mind, sports psychology was going to be the one, but that was the sexy business. The one where I got to speak at conferences and I was flying over the, around the country and everything like that. But it was really the business coaching that was steadier and more predictable. So I decided to put the sports psychology on a back burner and focus on uh, business coaching, starting out with a lot of different service-based entrepreneurs. And over time, I just really found that the thing I do best is helping my clients raise their fees, especially with their legacy or older clients that they've had forever, as well as the niche that I work best with out of all the service-based professionals tends to be the accounting professions, whether it's bookkeepers, taxpayers, or CPAs. So, so that's kind of the journey of how I went from sports psychology into business coaching. And the other part is I came from a family of CPAs. Mm -hmm. My mom always did her taxes. My brother's a CPA, my son-in-law, my sister-in-law. So it's always been around me and I've seen how hard they work and the difference that they make for their clients. And, and that was something that I appreciated about them. I want to resolve something that has always been in my mind personally when I, I think about that industry, which is... If you take the retail industry, for instance, there are certain peak periods of business, Christmas, and then you have, I guess, like secondary ones like Valentine's Day. Uh, and then with tax season, uh, April, I draw that same conclusion. It's obviously the most, uh, it's the busiest time of mm -hmm. the year by far. But then I, I don't know what they get up to for, for the rest of the year. And I know it's not really what I wanted to do today, but I bet you mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that are wondering, how does the, how does the entire year uh, kept busy? I think the first thing to realize is that there's many different industries uh, beyond taxes that have seasonality. They have highs and lows or ebb flows. Uh, and to realize that there are certain people that are in the tax pre preparation and they love the seasonality because they work really intensely for about 11 weeks out of the year and, and make most of their money then. And then they kind of like glide through because there's a lot of people that they have that need extensions and they'll do a later filing. So they are busy almost all year long. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of people that are in the accounting space, but they're doing monthly services or they might be doing more consultancy, not just the tax filing. And, and therefore... It isn't just about the taxes anymore. And I'm reminded also that for other people, it sort of works in reverse where they might be working in another industry that is busy maybe the rest of the time of the year. But around that that quarter, nothing really seems to be happening. So you do have other people in other industries who dip their toes into it as well. So there is there is a mix in mm -hmm. both ways. A absolutely. So I had... A couple of other things that I drew from your backstory, and then we're going to really jump into uh, our talk about um, how to value ourselves, value our clients, and mm -hmm. just so the audience knows, I'm really coming at this with a personal investment because I'm going through this myself. So it's a little bit of like a of a godsend today. But I remember uh, I'm going off on a kind of a weird journey here, but bear with me. So I remember um, we didn't watch a lot of Mash in school, but. Our teacher showed us a couple of episodes because the writing was so good. And he and one of the episodes was about someone who was injured. And it had turned out that his injury, his physical injury, was actually all in his head. And so he had to see a psychologist in order to get through his recovery. And then he was able to stand up. Now, mind you, that's fictional. But uh, in, in your work, did you ever mm -hmm. deal with something like that where a person's um, mental state was inhibiting yes. their recovery? Uh, it actually has a word. It's oh, called yeah? the yips. The yips. Y I P S. The, the yips is when all of a sudden there's some type of twitch that happens that affects someone's follow through or flow with a movement. And as a result of that, it makes them off the game. It create some self-doubt. They're now worried that it's going to happen again. So it's probably more likely to happen again. And therefore it could be in golf. It could be in uh, baseball. It, it could be in a lot of different types of uh, sports where people end up with the yips. But then there's other people that um, maybe have some type of phantom injury and that it's taken longer to heal than it ought to take. And that's because there might be some subconscious fear. They haven't fully forgiven themselves or worked it through to be able to really fully get back in a game and get 
stellar, like laser focused when they're in a competition. I was never much of an athlete, but I talk about this every so often on the program where I had a really, really, really heavy day of lifting, um, of, of rugs and I threw my back out. And even as I say the word rug, my back is like, Oh, you're getting any funny ideas there. Are you Joseph? Like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. But yeah, it, I was just this, this, this brilliant thing that I've learned a lot about in, in the last little while about how our brain is, we think it's just this mush thing in the cage when really it's all throughout our body. It's our nervous system, mm -hmm. it's cell memory, uh, imposing all of that. So it's a fascinating subject. I'm not, I'm not the expert. It's not what we're here to do today. So let's, let's jump into the problem that people are having. Um, people are, and I, I'm in this too, are putting a lot of time, a lot of energy, um, and some of our sanity into our work. And we would like to make more money because otherwise we're going to burn out or we're going to become frustrated and have to start all over. Um, so the, the, the consequences of not doing this can be pretty bad. So what is the core issue that, that you're seeing in, in the clients that you're working with that is holding them back from being able to raise their value, raise their rates and get closer to the financial goals that they should be setting based on what they can do. I think that it's something that's probably common across the board with most of us that end up having our own businesses is when we first start out in our profession or even in the workforce, our paycheck is pay is usually tied to time. Either you get an hourly rate or maybe a salary, but even salaries are usually time-based to some degree. And then when you decide to go on your own, there's a lot of things you need to do to get started. So you just go ahead and charge for your time because that's what you have always been paid for. That's what your income was always connected to. You might not even realize there's other pricing options available to you. And as a result of that, when you are connecting the prices to your time, then you eventually create what I call a income ceiling, an upper limit ceiling, where when you max out your time, you max out your earning potential. So the biggest challenge that I see for so many service-based business owners, whether they're coaches, marketers, uh, they are doing IT work, whatever that might be, is that connecting your fees to time creates a tug of war between you and your clients because they want you to work as quickly as possible to get as little possible on your invoice. And for you, um, you're not incentivized to speed things up and it undermines your expertise or if you add technology and additional software to be more efficient. So once again, it creates a tug of war with you and your clients. It leaves money on the table and it creates that upper limit challenge where you just have to start sacrificing your personal life to meet your revenue needs. Mm -hmm. I, I've experienced a lot of this in, in my 10 years of freelancing. And while I am happy with the progress that I've made, I have a lot more to go. And there are a couple of things that I had done personally to try to work out a, a decent understanding with clients. And one thing that it's important for me to stipulate is that while media creation is valuable in both subjective and objective terms, it's not so easy to quantify the return on investment as say, I don't know, building somebody a website. You build a website that can sell services, well, you can actually pretty well quantify what uh, what came out of it. And so we've we've had to uh, justify ourselves a lot of the time in, a, in this gray area where we want to no, persuade people not just on how this can build their platform and build their authority in the space, but also how this can be used for personal betterment, um, how it can be used as a networking tool. I have personal standards when it comes to how I edit. And some people want the A game, some people want the C game, some people want the F, well, nobody wants the F game, but sometimes it, I'm, I'm given F level material and I can do, I'm going to do the best I can with it. For me, the incentive is pretty much to always do the best that I can. And the reason being is that, let's say I, I, I edit something in one person's niche. Um, for instance, I have a, a client in the religious space. Now, if I want to find other clients in the religious space, I need to use that religious material because it shows my experience. It shows that I already know that niche. Versus if I were to pull something from some of my other niches, not only would I 
uh, be less competitive, but some of the other material that I've worked on would have the religious people very mad at me. So there's a really good reason why I want to work on stuff in the space that is relevant to them, which means if they want me to do good work, they got to pay me. And if they don't pay me that to do good work, I'm incentivized to do it anyways, because I might, you never know what work I need to show somebody else to attract additional clients. Over time, I've gotten pretty efficient at a lot of this stuff. I get faster at it. Um, my mm -hmm. workflow is built up. Muscle memory is built up. And so I can start to do something that might take somebody else three hours. It might take me two hours. So getting better at something has helped trim some of the, the, the time that it needs. But we're dealing with like nickel and dimes here. We haven't t done really like broad, far-reaching uh, changes to the platform. And I'm just kind of letting a lot of this out just because I want you to, and I want the audience to hear a lot of stuff that, Oh, freelancers like myself have to deal with. Um, so we're going to leave that spinning. But this is the this is this part that I really wanted to talk to you about because this is a fascinating thing that is our relationship with what we earn. So I've worked in nine to five settings, um, off, well, office settings, but in in retail settings where we're clocked for time, and we don't necessarily labor all of those hours. If I if I show up to the register mm -hmm. for nine o'clock and I'm out at five and I'm out at five o'clock, maybe it was a busy day and I labored a bunch, or maybe it was a slow day and I was on Reddit for an hour or two. And yet I'm being paid for that. So for me, uh, growing up, going through a lot of different settings, my relationship with how I'm earning money has not always been one to one with work that I'm doing. So when I started doing um, just pay for time, I turn the clock off when I go to the washroom, but at the same time, I'm always being paid for laboring. So I started to like that system more than just getting the the flat amount and not feeling like I was earning my keep on the on the slow days, or likewise feeling like I was being overworked on on the quick days. What feedback have you gotten from people who appreciate the 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 pay for time model, and what do you have to do to talk them out of it and move on to the to the next model? Well, I'm not actually here to talk anybody out of anything. I just think that every time you connect your fees to time, you're leaving money on the table and that people are now seeing you more as a technician because you're focusing on the tasks that you need to do. Anytime you're positioned as a technician, it undermines your expertise and it lowers your perceived value from someone who's hiring you for your services. So what I feel is that you can get paid more without any additional time spent working if you position yourself more as an expert who knows what to do to achieve a specific solution. Whether, as you were saying for yourself, it might be that they rise up as an influencer. Uh, it helps with networking. So even though you can't tie what you do exactly to a dollar amount, there are benefits and certain outcomes you know that you can deliver for your clients. So when you are focusing on the skills that you have to be able to deliver a certain solution, they see you more as that consultant as opposed to a technician. And then you can actually start to set your fees and price the client and the value of your work to the client for being able to help them with that as opposed to the actual technical things that you're doing to achieve that result for the client. They don't care about the editing. They don't care whether you go to the bathroom or not go to the bathroom or how long it takes or that you did the level A, B, C of editing. They don't know the difference to the degree that you do. All they know is, did they get more comments on their posts now? Or are they getting more engagement or invitations to certain things? And that's where your value lies. It's not on anything technical that you're doing. Okay. And uh, let me just say, I, I didn't um, intend to say, like, put words in your mouth and say that you're here oh, to no, convince no, no, people no, one way no. or another. Uh, it's, it's important jo to clear Joseph, that. Yeah. This is just a conversation. You cannot say anything that's going to throw me off. So um, I'm good. Okay. Okay. All good. Um, I'm very much like a due diligent kind of person. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, um, you know, many of, uh, of our clients, um, many of the clients that you work with, people want to earn more. And let's say that 
by the end of this episode, people are really driven to do it. Um, are there first steps that you, you would typically talk your clients through to um, uh, start working on this and what they need to figure out about themselves? Yes. And what I have developed um, is what I call the raise your rates framework. And basically, it's a series of five steps. And even if you take the essence of it that I'm going to share with you today, you'll start to actually work with better clients and also raise the bar, the quality of services that you can offer. So the very first one is quality clients, because in the beginning, you're saying yes to a wide range of clients from those low value to the high value clients. And what we want to do is be more aware of what is the makeup of a high value client, what it is that they want to achieve, and start to be able to be more intentional about how to attract them. So if you want to have your dream business, you want to work with better clients. Uh, after understanding your quality clients and their makeup and what matters to them, then step two is about communicating your value. This is about knowing the right words to say, whether it's on a video or on an interview like you and I are doing right now, Joseph, uh, what you put on your website when you're at a network meeting and someone asks you what you do, you want to be able to have those right words to be able to grab the attention of those quality clients to where they want to know more. The third step is packaging your services, because I look at a lot of websites and I go to the services page and I see this long laundry list of all the different a la carte services that they offer. Now, a lot of them might apply to a particular client that has landed on your services page, but they might not really understand what all these mean. And because of the fact that they don't really recognize the meaning of it, they might bounce off to somebody else who has actually spelled it out a little bit more elementary. So I suggest getting away from a la carte services and start bundling your services into packages because that's the first step to start separating your fees from time and being more outcome focused. And number four is value pricing. It's something I love to talk about. I know we're going to get into it today. And value pricing is different from the traditional either flat fee or hourly rate, because when you have an hourly rate or flat fee, you're looking at what is of value to you, which is your time, your operational costs, and maybe a little bit of profit margin. When you value pricing, you're actually looking at the value from the client's point of view and what the takeaways would be for them. And as a result of that, you can actually earn two to three times more without any additional time spent working. And then the last one is what I call consultation mastery, because no matter, even if you go through business school, they do not teach you how to engage clients, consult, sell your services. And so people wing it and they make a lot of mistakes because they don't really understand how to be able to do it to the best to in a client-centered way. Mm -hmm. First of all, nobody wants to be pitched or sold to, and most business owners don't like the sales part. So consultation mastery is where you're asking very specific questions that's geared to them and what they want to achieve. And as a result of asking those specific questions, they see the value of moving forward with you than someone who is more focused on the technical parts of the work. And as a result of that, I call this more of a value conversation. And towards the end of the conversation, they are going to naturally ask you, how does this work and move forward? So those are the five steps of the Raise Your Rates formula is quality client, communicate your value, package your services, value pricing, and consultation mastery. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of exciting stuff to get into, but let's start by talking a little bit about our legacy clients. Um, I, I've got legacy clients. Um, we, I'm sure a lot of the people listening have legacy clients. You know, a personal relationship with a client is... It shouldn't, I don't know, I, I, we'll, we'll see if I'm wrong about this, but it shouldn't be a deciding factor. It often is because it there does become a personal side to it. Mm -hmm. It's not the same thing as just emailing a company and finding out that like, oh, there's a new HR person every six months or whatever because of turnover. A client is, is a long-term relationship. So is it possible to elevate our clients so that... They that they can get into a an, an area where we can um, provide better value services for them, or historically, and this might be something that we can I can only um, hear about um, specific in the niche that you're working on, which is fair. Which is 
have you found that the that the clients that your clients are, are trying to help have typically remained at their financial position and typically it doesn't really happen? Well, well, that's yes and no, because I'm sure that not all people listening to us are actually working with business owners. Some people do soft services such as health and wellness also. And this is just as relevant for health and wellness because there's a lot of value about self-care as mm -hmm. there is about a business. So value is really subjective and it's up to the client to determine what the value is of continuing to engage your services or not. But what I see is a lot of times we bring someone on as a client and we keep them at their old rates or we do very, very little incremental fee increases like 5% a year, 10% a year, but they're never really at your current rates that you're charging new clients coming in. And as a result of that, they become less profitable over time, especially if the needs have expanded and you're giving them more services, but you haven't increased your fees. So what I want to say to everybody is when you have these old clients and they're still at their old rates, it's because you don't want to upset the status quo. There's this fear of losing a client. They're going to push back and have some objection of why you're charging them more, or they're going to ask if you're going to be giving them more services because you're raising your fees. And it makes you very defensive. If you tend to be someone who's very client centered, uh, it might feel like it's confrontational. And so it's better to avoid those things. I want to just say research has shown across the field is clients that if you've invested in the relationship and you are client-centered, those clients are stickier. They're not as likely to actually leave and go somewhere else when you increase your rates because they have that relationship, just like you know and like them. They know and like you. They don't want to start over with somebody else. It's like serial dating mm -hmm. where you're dating <laughs> lots of people, you know, and you have to start all over again with everybody and and then later on the road, you find out stuff about them, but you still like them. So I want to say that with clients who have been with you for any length of time, you're client-centered, uh, they're stickier. And statistically, even if you do a fee increase, 82% of those clients will stick with you. And the ones that tend to go are the ones who either didn't value your services to begin with, or that they were price sensitive and they were always cheap and questioning your rates. So you tend to actually get uh, lose the ones that weren't quality or ideal clients to begin with. This opens up more time for you to actually maybe enroll someone who's a better fit for you now, or it lets you do deeper work or a project with somebody that you didn't have the time for. But either way, even if you lose that 18%, then you're going to still be making more money than if you would have just stick with the status quo. And because this is a formula that I teach, I've seen it be as high as 100% of clients convert to the new fees. And I'm not talking about that little 10 to 20% increase. I'm talking about with some people, it's been like a 50% increase. It's significant, but they've been wondering why you haven't been raised their rates sooner. And they know that they've been getting a great deal with you. Have you by any chance noticed that this has gotten slightly easier for people to do because inflation is much more common in the way in the conversations that we're having? Yeah, because inflation has become more noticeable in even just day-to-day -day grocery expenses. Having that as a as an argumentative point, saying, well, you know, just because of inflation, I, I have to charge more money. I believe that most business owners don't make a decision to raise the rates when they do it tomorrow. It takes, so let me just ask you, how long do you think about raising rates, Joseph, before you actually do it? On, on average, I consider it once a year and I usually mm -hmm. try to target a higher rate with each new client acquisition. So I think I've done a few, <laughs> I think I've done a couple of things right. So mm -hmm. uh, actually just yeah. yesterday, and you would think that this had something to do with the conversation, but I swear it didn't. Uh, I was just on my Upwork uh, profile, mm -hmm. giving it a refresh and I raised my, my rate. And one thing that it had me thinking too, is that by raising your rate, you actually sh show people who are looking for value at that price range. If, no one is offering value at a at a price range that they're willing to go for, mm -hmm. then 
they're not going to think you're going to do as good a job if they pay a lower amount. Um, so I, sorry, I was a little, was a little jumbled, but essentially if someone is look, I, I don't know how else to put this. Someone is looking for a $200 job and you're only offering 50 bucks. Well, maybe you can do the job. Maybe you can't, but people need to know that they're investing that level of capital. So they get that level of quality out of it. Mm -hmm. And they respect you more for it. They have actually a better service usually, but getting, getting back to the question is that Typically, whether you're a solo business owner or part of a large corporation, Fortune 500, most times when you think about raising rates, it's something that doesn't happen the next day. It is a process. And the economy is a good excuse for people. But I want to just say I would never use that as an excuse for raising my rates. Is justifying that my operational costs have gone on up because then your clients, if you're using that as an excuse, they're feeling punished mm -hmm. that they have to pay right. for your increased costs. And they're having that same experience as well. I don't think you ought to ever justify a rate increase because the economy or something else. Uh, the justification is that you're really good at what you're doing. You're probably even better now than you were a year ago because you have more experience. You've worked on more projects. You have more expertise. Maybe you took some uh, classes or went to conferences. So your value that you bring to the table is better because of that. And, and that's the reason for raising your rates is because you have more expertise and you can deliver on what they're engaging you to do. Not, not because of some outside reason like the economy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, this, these are, these have been my, uh, my responses to it, but I am also interested in if there's any standout, um, client stories, uh, along these lines or what were some of the conversations that you've had to have and just tell, kind of like help recalibrate this in people's mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, with, with one of my clients, Susan, she is a bookkeeper and she does not like having those sales conversations at all. They, they make her very, very nervous because she's a people pleaser. She uh, feels that all of her clients are price sensitive and cheap. So she actually has very had very low rates because she just wanted everybody to say yes to her because a no made her feel that they didn't, maybe they didn't like her or she offended them. And as a result of that, she needed to have a lot of clients to meet her revenue needs, which meant that she had that factory style business. So what we did is uh, when we started working together, she had someone come to her for a bookkeeping project. And she said if she would have originally calculated her time and by her hourly rate, maybe it would have been $1,500 that she would have quoted them. But we had a really quick conversation of looking at it from the client's perspective of what value they would have gained from her being able to get their financials accurate and up to date in their books. And, the and how that would make a difference for them. And they could make better financial decisions. It would actually save them money overall and so on and so forth. So as a result of that, instead of that $1,500, she went ahead and priced it at $7,900. That's a $6,400 difference. It wasn't about the time. It was about focusing on the outcome and the benefit to them instead of the workflow that she'd actually be doing. And because it was a process, she had the exact questions to ask when she spoke with them. She knew how to talk about the money piece and actually asked to get paid up front, which she's never done before. And they went ahead and said yes. So this gave her evidence that clients weren't as price sensitive as she thought that they were. And over the course of about nine months, she bought an additional $56,000 by pricing her projects on the value to the client instead of her time and starting to raise the fees of current clients as well. But the other part was, okay, she bought in the $56,000, but she went from also working seven days a week, 70 hours a week down to three days a week, 20 hours a week, which meant that she wasn't burned out any longer. And um, it made a difference for her being available, her family too. And I want to just say she was really nervous going through this process because she was someone who's very client-centered, but it took courage to do it. And, and the confidence came as people began saying yes to her new fees. To put myself in the shoes of, uh, of your client's clients, um, the one who were um, uh, paying for the services, there's this tension between our, our monkey brain and our, and our lizard brain or our bird brain, whatever is the, mm -hmm. the logical uh, beast within us. Because when you see the upfront cost of something, it, it's almost guttural. It's something that we're going to have to be um, paying, 
right away this very day. That money is going to leave our account. But then you see the the amount that you're going to save. And that is something that will be in the future, but it doesn't have that same um, almost primal uh, reaction to somebody. So um, is part of the coaching helping to align people to the rational, logical side and trying to overcome that that more Mm -hmm. uh, emotional reaction? That's a really good point that you bring up, Joseph. And I will say that people typically engage your services because it's based on emotion first. So they like you, they start to trust you, they feel that you get them, there's some rapport, and then it's justified with logic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's usually an emotional response first, and then you will justify it with logic afterwards. Now, just because I'm, this is a lot of absorption for me, and and there's a lot of learning involved. Um, we we did say we wanted to make sure that we got into value pricing, but you have to forgive me if what we've discussed so far yeah. is at least uh, related to it. So let's fresh take value pricing. Um, how do we how do we understand this going forward? Mm-hmm. So once again, uh, what I see is there's three primary ways of pricing your services when you're service-based entrepreneur. The hourly rate, which is how most of us start out. So look at this as an evolution. The second tier is going to be a fixed price because you don't want to track your time any longer. You don't like doing um, invoices and having to recreate everything you did for a client because you probably didn't track it well anyway. So you go to a fixed fee, which is the second tier. And then the third tier is value pricing, where you start to price the client instead of your time and operational costs. So those are the three tiers of how to price for your services. The definition of value pricing in in, in, in a very simplified way is the client needs to believe that what they had to gain from engaging your firms or businesses services is greater than the fees that they're paying you. So, so that's really a very simple working definition. They need to believe that what they have to gain is greater than the fees that they're paying for your services. Mm-hmm. And um, taking this in and everything that we've talked about so far, so how I'm understanding this through my lens and through my uh, form of work is, while I'm very confident in my technical ability, it it is also the results that are the key indicators of whether or not people would or would not go on with my services. And so focusing more on the results is a much better way to um, showcase my value, but to also increase my value as well. And that's been sort of the sticking point that I wanted to um, really articulate is to have that confidence to double my rates what do people typically do to not just prove it to the client, but really prove that to themselves? Mm, I I think that what I see is first, you have to connect with your value before you can expect anybody else to recognize the value that you have to offer. That's the very first thing. And then the second thing is that when you're meeting with someone, it's about knowing how to navigate that conversation. So it's a value conversation that resonates with the client instead of just being one that gathers the details you need in order to do the work. And then it's also about knowing about understanding how to be able to discuss the different um, ways of engaging your services or what the investment will be moving forward. So that's what I see is it's more like a three-step process. Uh, You first have to really understand your value and what you bring to the table. And uh, if you tend to be a high achiever, A lot of times you might be minimizing it because it's easy for you. You don't give it as much credibility as it ought to have, or you have imposter syndrome and you don't think that you're worthy of charging higher fees. Uh, So that's one thing to think about. And then having the value conversation is not a typical sales pitch. Uh, It's really about focusing on the client, letting them know that you're client-centered and that you really get them and that you can achieve the result that's meaningful to them and then, like I said, it's about how to discuss uh, moving forward. It's not about how much time or even about the work you're doing, because sometimes they come to you with something that they want to achieve. And I'm positive that this is your experience, too, because they don't have the expertise that you do, Joseph. They think that they need to do it one way, but you know that there's a better way that's going to get them a better result. Yeah. And 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 that's because you have the expertise. So they are coming to you thinking that they need uh option A, but you know that option B is a much better solution and they should stop listening to to Mm -hmm. everything on TikTok and getting the information from there. So I will give you an example of that with my producing. So 
with one of the, my other clients, um, he runs an agency, and so I have service clients on on his behalf. Uh, he's sort of like it's the closest thing that I have to a boss as, as far as like I don't know how it, and being answerable to somebody else. And we and we produce podcasts, but what was happening was that a lot of the people who were doing podcasts with us, they were happy with the work. They just they ran out of money. And the reason why people ran out of money is because the podcasts would be released on a week-to-week basis because statistics show that consistency is is key to uh, building an audience. And they would build something of a following, but by the time that they had ran out of money, they the, the following just wasn't enough to sustain them. And that's when we realized that we need to offer a different product, which is a seasonal product something that ended up being six episodes to 12 episodes of a self-contained uh, piece of evergreen content that you can then re-clip into smaller pieces of media, put it on social media, LinkedIn, wherever you want to uh, put it. And that can just be repurposed um, indefinitely. And I see people do this, by the way, on LinkedIn. I, I've seen clips from podcasts that I recorded with them years ago that they mm-hmm. still put on, on on LinkedIn because it's an easy way to just stay in people's face and to say, don't we haven't forgot it. Don't forget about us. We haven't forgotten about you. And so that's where like I that was a hard learned lesson, which is not everybody has it in them to do a show that unfortunately they're going to be doing at a loss for eons. But if they just put together a really good, solid 12 episode a piece of media that can build a following and then say, Hey, we're doing another season. Thanks for all of your support. That is, that has been a much better option for a lot of people. So that is the kind of, that is an example of a product that I know the better way to do it. Please listen to me on this one. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because of that, you were able to come up with a solution to a common problem. So many people that are hosting podcasts because they want to be seen as influencers, they want to expand their reach, whatever, you know, eventually they don't know how to monetize it or how to repurpose it. So it it falls flat. They put in all this time, effort and money and it just falls flat. But what we've discovered is that we can go ahead and turn it into an evergreen product so it continues to do what you originally wanted it to do without it ever being any additional cost unless you decided to go ahead and do another investment with that. So you found a solution to a problem and now it's speaking about it, which starts to create expertise around that particular common problem. And probably most podcasters aren't even talking about it. So start talking about something that's a reality is something that would grab attention also. And I would definitely point to a lot of my own false starts as well to, as, as evidence for, for how this goes. Um, one thing that I know this is going through my head, but this is more of a, like a, a niche question that I think is the kind of thing that only Joseph deals with. And I don't think a lot of other people deal with, but has there ever been a good reason not to switch to the value model? Cause I know you, you, you uh, describe it as an evolution, but do you ever see an example of where um, someone really found better success and fixed or, or was so satisfied with the time model that moving up wasn't in the cards? I think that it depends on the individual um, and that I haven't worked with all different types of businesses, even though I've worked with a wide range before I focused on the accounting profession. And, And what I would say is if you feel that you can't actually deliver on that and be able to really stick with your rates, then maybe sticking with a fixed fee or a hourly rate is better. Uh, But the other part of it is that when you are charging for your time, the part that backfires is that you tend to then discount your services. You're going to have people that might not follow through and pay you, so you're having write-offs to work already done. Also, that you might spend more hours than what was expected when you look at the invoice. You're just giving a discount before they even asked for it. So it tends to be something that leaves money on the table. And the only time I would say maybe to start out with an alley rate first is if you've never done something and you're learning how to do it and implement it and you're kind of figuring it out. So you're getting kind of paid to learn that particular skill or work level. And that's a good time to be able to stick with an alley rate. 
But if you stick with an hourly rate with that client, and then you want to later on move them to value pricing, it makes it a little bit more difficult because now they are used to something different and people don't like change. So you need to go through a process of then getting them over to your new rates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh boy, I wonder, I wonder, uh, yeah, I'm wondering about this question. So this one just, it just came to me, but I, I want people to email me their their answer to this too, um, because we all have a lot of different niches. And so the answer to this can be very subjective. But I think part of what I would be concerned about in, in offering value is how much of the results actually are uh, contingent on my work versus how much do they have to utilize my work correctly to provide to succeed on on their own terms so uh, i'll use my work as an example so i, I mm-hmm. hand somebody a good quality edit and then they post it on their feed and maybe mention it once on on twitter and off they go now i would have to consult with them to explain to them how to get their material out there more often more consistently but ultimately if they don't do it then there's limits to how much value I've been able to provide for them. So is that an issue that, that you've encountered with the, the people that you're helping where you have to mm-hmm. draw firm lines with, okay, here's the value that I'm providing, but this is the value that you have to provide? Uh, Joseph, I think the what I'm hearing is that I can't take responsibility for anybody's actions aside yeah. from my own. And when someone is hiring, they're hiring me to deliver a certain result but I can't take responsibility for whether they follow through or implement or if they follow through in the same timeline as somebody else does. And that's especially true when we're talking about coaching, we're talking about marketing and a lot of other services is if they need to do, the client needs to do something on their part also to get the best results. You can work with them as much as you can, but you can't control them and make them do something that they're not doing. And and I think that that's common across the board with a lot of professionals is we see some clients that don't do anything that you tell them to do. Mm-hmm. You don't, you wonder why they even paid you for this. And then there's other clients that take everything that you tell them and they implement and they get the great results. So it's knowing that you have the ability to deliver, but you have to detach yourself from whether someone actually follows through or not. And the only thing I would say with that is maybe to have some safeguards in place to make sure that you're reaching out and you give offering the support within reason um, so that they can follow through, but you can't make someone follow through. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I learned this uh, also a valuable lesson um, just a, a few episodes ago um, with, I believe it was um, Katie Smith, which was just about also when working with clients is r- making sure that you're being compelling and persuasive in a way that doesn't put them on the defensive. So the difference between mm-hmm. telling a client you need to upgrade yeah. your microphone versus asking them, so you haven't upgraded your, your sound quality in quite a few years. Well, is there a reason why you haven't put down that money for it? And the difference okay. between the two has, it can be stark. Uh, okay, so let me give you an idea on this. Sure. What if they hired you for a package and in the package you sent them the right microphone and equipment as part of it, and it was part of your mm-hmm. fees. That would just take away the whole problem of them having to go out and invest in it. It's part of the investment of working with you. I like that. Yeah, I, I, I can see yeah. the wheels turning. Yeah. You know what, there's, there's something I did want to share because sure. we've been talking about value pricing and maybe you asked it, but um, I didn't quite answer it um, in the way that I wanted to. So sure. do you mind if I um, share a little bit about value pricing and how to start? Oh, I love it. Go for it. Okay. So if anybody, you know, that's listening to us is interested in value pricing, maybe they've heard about it, this is the first time, but it intrigues you and you want to give it a try. I have a process I call good, better, best pricing. And it's similar to learning how to first ride a two-wheel bicycle. In the beginning, you're like really shaky. So you put on those training wheels. And once you get steadier, you can take the training wheels off. So this is like the first steps to value pricing when you're currently charging for your time or fixed fee. So what you want to do is you can have new clients coming to you. You want to come up with the original fixed fee that you would charge them. And now we're going to go ahead and multiply that original fixed fee by 1.5. That's your new good rate. I want you to enroll three people at that new good rate because this gives you some evidence that people aren't quite as price sensitive as you thought that they were. And after you enroll those three new people at your new good rate, we're going to go up to tier two, which will be your better rate. 
people will come to you, once again, come up with that original fixed price you would have charged, and now you're gonna multiply it by 2X. So this means you're now earning two times more with no additional time spent working. But as a result of this, you're getting better at having that initial consultation and what they need to hear in order to see the value of engaging your firm services. After you enroll three people at that new better rate, we go up to tier three, which is your best rate. And as a result of this, once again, you come up with that initial fixed fee, you multiply it by three X, and you start to enroll people at three times what you were originally charging. Because of this, you don't need as many clients now to meet your revenue needs. You're working with a higher quality client who really respects the expertise that you're bringing to the table. And because you don't need as many clients, you could take back some of that time to either work more closely on projects with your clients or more consultancy work. You can work more on business development, or you could just take back some of your free time and take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you might want to recalibrate and take your new best rate and go through the good, better, best pricing model all over again. If you want the handout on how to start separating your fees and time and going through that good, better, best pricing model, you can go to my website, businesssuccesssolution.com forward slash package, and, and you can get that free resource. And I want to say, yes, it does say that it's for accountants because that's who I mainly work with, but this applies to all service-based entrepreneurs. Just replace that word accountant with whatever profession you're in. Well, I, I'll be taking you up on it. So that's uh, that, that much I can, I can guarantee you. When you're guiding um, clients th um, through this, do you ever spot, say, behavioral habits that people need to iron out because they're used to working on the time model versus now? Every moving? single one of my clients. Okay. So, okay. So uh, what are some of the traps that people fall into? This is a process and an evolution. It's not like you think about it and you implement it tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's a different, it's a paradigm shift. So it's a different way of really looking at yourself, what you're doing for your clients, being more intentional about who you want to work with and having a business that really supports your lifestyle because it's one that brings out the best in you. You're doing your best work and you know you're making a difference. We, oh my goodness, it's, it, so it's 4.56 p.m. We've uh, uh, got, it's a pretty pretty substantive hour, I'd say. I feel like we've just been um, going a mile a minute here. Um, so I'm going to, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to keep you around for maybe another yeah. 10 minutes. Then we're going to go over, we did a little overtime today. I think it's warranted. So one thing that's always uh, fun to ask uh, coaches is if you recall any uh, lessons you learned early on in developing your business and how you applied those corrections to get you to the place that you are now? Absolutely. Uh, a lesson I learned early on was that I was invoicing in the beginning of my coaching practice also and getting paid afterwards. And even though people might be in a contract with me for a specific period of time, if they ended up having a crisis or financial stress or something like that, they were rethinking all the expenses. And sometimes that meant that they would stop coaching with me. And what happened was that their financial crisis affected my earning potential also. And I wanted to stop that because it, it wasn't how I wanted to do business, was feeling like I was hungry for clients or I had to hold on to someone. And the other part of it with my clients is that when they're having problems with their finances or challenges, I want them to actually dig in deep with me so I can help them through that in, mm -hmm. instead of pulling back because they're trying to just survive that urgency. So that's when I worked with a very high level coach on how to be able to go from invoicing, getting paid after the fact to a prepayment model to where I now get paid before I do the services so that I don't have to worry about write-offs or someone not following through with me or someone wanting to negotiate my fees. It's very transparent and I get paid first before I deliver the service. Did you ever do a hybrid where you would take a chunk of it up front and then have the the other chunk um, at the other I, end? I will do some. I will, I do, so there's two ways that I offer people to invest in my services. One is they can pay the full fee up front or we do installments. I, do, I don't do month to month. Um, and the installments would be front loaded so that they're paying off the fees my, for my services before the contract is over. Okay. Yeah. I, cause I've had, um, 
for the most part, my clients have paid, but I have had uh, a couple mm-hmm. of uh, horror stories. Uh, this horror story, this was a few years ago now, where I I had to get used to a new video software, and there were so there were a round of cor- corrections going on that corrupted some of the video data that I was working on, and I, and I was losing like ten hours worth of work, and I almost like threw up because I was just so like I couldn't believe how much time I was I was losing. Mostly my fault, but I had to deal with it one way or another. And of course, that one of the most nightmarish edits that I had ever had to do was also a client who never paid. And and I and I follow up and I follow up and there 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 gets to a point where I accept I'm not gonna get the money, but I still wanna get the best out of the situation that I can. So my solution was, listen, you it's you haven't paid me. I don't think you're gonna pay me, but at the very least, could you put some time in to find a referral or two some of someone who would uh, appreciate my quality of work? So that's, again, I would rather have the money, but the amount of time that I would have to put into to try to extract it out of them and then the enemies that I might make mm-hmm. all, along the way might not be worthwhile. So that was the best solution I can come up with, which is maybe this value will turn, will it's a seed now that can bloom later, but do you ever have to deal with like a specific scenario like that? Joseph, I think we've all had these expensive, mm-hmm. tough learning lessons. The lessons that I've learned because I've been in business and we all take risks because we have to grow and evolve, uh, I probably could have paid for a Harvard education by now. So we, we've all made costly mistakes. And I, I find for myself that I probably get insights and I learn from my mistakes so that I can make corrections so that the next time around, I have a better outcome. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it, it's also just helpful to have that, those gritty experiences. So that way, when I have to argue for upfront payment, it, it comes from that place. There, you know, this, the emotion is on our side this time, which is why I'm coming from an emotional place as well, which is this, mm-hmm. these are situations that I'm not going through this again. So now I know whether or not I would be willing right. to value this in the future. I, I don't think you have to argue for upfront payment. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's I more that this is just how you set things up in your business for them to work with you as you get paid upfront. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess just because like specifically for me being in, in, in media, you get a lot of like temperamental personalities. So it, yeah. the, 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 there's, there's fluctuations to some of the people that we, we've worked I, with. Yeah. Totally understand. Yeah. yeah. We we have okay. I don't want to start spilling on it because I've I'm I've, I'm very you're being very generous with your time. So I'm just going to close the person that I wanted to rant about for now, and then maybe I'll, I'll maybe we'll back have to the round sequel. two. Yeah, yeah. Um, so going going forward, there the, the 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 final things that we like to ask as we wrap the episode up is right now, what are your day to day challenges? What are the the issues that either your platform is facing business or any, you know, it's not like a, a fire that you need to put out, but what are some of the uh, pain points that you're trying to address at the point that you're at? Um, so some of the things that are challenges for me is that I haven't done any in-person conferences for the most part since 2019 pre COVID. Right. And this 2023, I got back into doing in-person engagements again and I want to get more in-person engagements set up because I fully enjoy speaking uh, and, and I'm on a mission to really help business owners find the value, make more money in their businesses. So that's the first thing is really more speaking opportunities. Um, virtual is great. In-person, I enjoy just as much. So it's getting more of those on my calendar. And another challenge I would say that I'm working on is... Um, and this is part of maybe that bigger vision also, is continuing to build community um, with people who resonate with what I have to offer and um, turning some of my group coaching programs into more self-study programs. And and, and so that transition to from group to self-study is part of what I have been working on as well. Okay, excellent. Well, I, I my, my brain is like, well, it's not totally a mush, but it's like, oh, Joseph, that was a lot of information. That's uh, we we need to uh, get the potatoes in here and start stewing. Uh, so I'm looking forward to taking you up on the the resource you shared um, because this is an issue that I am facing today. Like, it is 
Mm-hmm. This is very present day, very relevant for me. Yeah. And I know it's going to be relevant for a lot of the people listening. So I can't wait to uh, get this episode out there and share it around. Um, but in the interest of due diligence, which, you know, is at this point, might as well be tattooed to my forehead. Um, were there any other key uh, points or observations or anything else lingering in your mind as a result of this conversation you wanted to make sure that we covered before we go? I believe that every single person here is probably leaving some money on the table and charge under charge of their services. If you're thinking that you are, then you probably are. And it is possible to make this switch over to getting higher fees and working with better uh, clients by moving to the value-based pricing um, and and just taking charge of your business. And I just want to say, if somebody wants to have a further conversation, they resonate with what we talked about, they got one action tip they can immediately implement and want to talk about how to get this dialed in, I can be reached and you can let me know at businesssuccesssolution.com forward slash let's talk. And we can get that dedicated conversation set up. Terrific. Well, Lauren, um, thank you one more time for uh, everything mm-hmm. that you've done for us today. This has been a fantastic episode. And uh, let's let's get the stove turned on and let's get the... Man, I'm trying so hard to think of a perfect metaphor. in Let's get the potatoes in there. Let's get the beef in there. Let's start the stew. Um, so for those of you who have any feedback for me or you just want to be in touch with the program, we are always happy to hear from you. So you can contact Joseph at ImpactfulCoachingPodcast.com. Joseph is spelled J-O-S-E-P-H. The rest is spelled the way you're used to. And so with that, it is our endeavor to ensure in whatever way you are helping others, we want you to be as impactful as you can. <laughs>